based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is in our series of the AUA Expert Exchange podcasts, discussion about managing GU cancer. And today we're going to speak specifically about targeted therapies for renal cell carcinoma. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host today, uh, Dr. Jay Raman. Dr. Raman is professor and chief of urology at Penn State Health in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And also, I am very happy to say that Dr. Raman will be uh, the successor to, uh, to me in the Office of Education uh, chair uh, role um, uh, beginning in June of 2021. So you'll be hearing him uh, on this side of the, of the microphone uh, in the future. Uh, and Jay, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, doing this podcast and uh, congratulations on your new position. Uh, Vic, yeah, very, thank you very much. Uh, very, uh, very excited. Uh, looking forward to it and uh, very much welcome the opportunity to have this conversation uh, this evening on uh, targeted therapies for kidney cancer. Okay, I'm just going to go through a couple of learning objectives that we have for this and then we'll get right into it. So our two learning objectives for today are to review the mechanisms of action, efficacy, and safety of currently available targeted treatments for renal cell carcinoma, and second, to facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding uh, renal cell cancer treatment options. So Jay, what I'd like to do first is just start out with um, a, a little bit about uh, advanced kidney cancer and like maybe the concept of how we can risk stratify patients with advanced uh, RCC. Yeah, sure, Vic. I, yeah, I think it's a great way to sort of think about the whole concept of targeted therapy. You know, if we look in the United States uh, this coming year, we'll probably have almost 75,000 uh, patients diagnosed with kidney cancer. And so it makes it one of the most common cancers that we deal with, particularly in urology. Now, even beyond diagnosis, there's almost 15,000 patients that will die of disease. And this is typically the group that we think of as those who will have advanced kidney cancer. 
One of the important things to recognize is that although survival for patients with localized disease is quite good, five-year survival rate is over 90%, we have a lot of room for improvement in those who have regional or, or even metastatic disease where the cure rates and the survival rates unfortunately fall off a great deal. I think one of the key foundations in talking about targeted therapy is to understand that advanced kidney cancer is sort of a mixed bag. It's a heterogeneous array of disease. And so we have to use something like risk stratification because it helps guide how we think about it. It helps guide how we treat it. Probably for urologists, the two most common risk models that are out there that we'll hear about are uh, the first is the Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, or MSKCC risk stratification model. And the other one is the International Metastatic Renal Cell Carcinoma Database Consortium or the IMDC prognostic model. And, and they're both organized fairly similarly. The MSKCC model basically divides patients into risk groups, favorable, intermediate, and poor. And the stratification is based on risk scores, and this comes from clinical information uh, and laboratory data, the clinical information being performance status, uh, time from diagnosis to treatment, and the labs are you know, high LDH level, albumin, corrected calcium. Probably what we use more commonly now, though, in this targeted therapy uh, realm is this IMDC uh, prognostic model. So very similar to what I just mentioned with the MSKCC risk stratification model. It's basically dividing patients into favorable, intermediate, and poor risk groups. And again, uses some clinical factors like performance status and time from initiation of diagnosis until they start therapy. And then the IMDC uses four laboratory factors, hemoglobin, calcium level, neutrophil count, and platelets. And so the whole point of all this risk stratification is that it actually supports how we manage these patients. So there is some data to show that even surveillance for metastatic kidney cancer may be appropriate in some patients with favorable risk disease. Similarly, which we're going to talk about in a moment, the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy is actually a little bit dependent upon which risk group these patients are in. And finally, when we even talk about targeted or systemic therapies, which therapies we use is dependent, again, in part on which risk group these patients belong to. So when we talk about risk stratification, it's not just risk related to the cancer itself, but the overall performance status of the patient, et cetera. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So I think some of the variables that we measure are sort of reflectors of the cancer, but others are more reflective of the host, the patient themselves, and probably their ability to, number one, tolerate therapy. And number two, I suspect that some of these factors are a reflection of how much perhaps damage the cancer or the disease has done to the patient. So you, uh, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy, and that used to be um, something that was very popular uh, when advanced therapies started to become available years ago in the, I guess, interferon uh, era. What's the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy today? 
Yeah, this is a really important point because the, the thought process on cytoreductive nephrectomy has really evolved in the past five to seven years. So to your point exactly, historically, when we looked at the role of nephrectomy in patients who had metastatic kidney cancer, uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy played a central role. And there were some very good trials that were done um, I mean, the early 2000s, looking exactly as you mentioned at the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy along with interferon alpha versus just interferon alpha, just systemic therapy alone. And there was a U.S. trial and a European trial. And essentially, when you looked at these two trials in amalgam, it showed about a six-month survival advantage for those who underwent cytoreductive nephrectomy. But we have to realize that these studies were really done in a time when systemic therapy was not very effective for kidney cancer. Frankly, the median overall survival with systemic therapy through cytokines was maybe less than a year. And now that we've started to move into this era where our systemic targeted therapies are far more effective, it really lends the question of whether cytoreductive nephrectomy should still remain the standard of care. And, and really to answer that, I think there's two important trials that, that you know, urologists should know about. Uh, the first one was the SIRTIME trial. So the SIRTIME trial was really a question or a trial geared to ask the question of timing of systemic therapy. So this trial took patients with metastatic kidney cancer and it randomized them to either getting immediate surgery, so immediate cytoreductive nephrectomy, followed by sunitinib, which is one of the targeted agents we'll talk about in a short bit, versus getting three cycles of sunitinib beforehand, then getting a cytoreductive nephrectomy, and then following with sunitinib afterwards. And the trial lasted about six years. It accrued 100 patients, but the key take-home message was that in the patients who received delayed cytoreductive nephrectomy, so they received sunitinib up front and then surgery, they had a significantly greater median overall survival. It's almost twice as long, 32 versus 15 months. And importantly, those that were in this deferred arm, meaning that they got sunitinib first, many of them were able to go on and receive cytoreductive nephrectomy, while those that had surgery up front, almost a fifth of them didn't get systemic therapy. So clearly some information that suggested that maybe cytoreductive nephrectomy upfront may be more problematic and may not be as efficacious. But I think the real game changer recently has been the Carmina trial. Um, this Carmina trial just, uh, it was really discussed extensively in the past year. And this was a non-inferiority randomized control trial. So it compared immediate cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sunitinib versus just sunitinib alone. And this trial had about 450 patients. And what was really interesting was that the trial showed that the sunitinib alone arm actually had similar survival when compared to those who had cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sunitinib. And that was really true when you looked at intermediate risk patients as well as high risk patients. Now, one of the criticisms of Carmina is that the trial was really enriched, had a lot of patients in it who had more poor risk features and had advanced kidney cancer with high metastatic burden. And so perhaps the trial was a byproduct of perhaps patient selection. 
But I think it's important. The outcome is significant. It's certainly clinically relevant. I think it highlights that cytoreductive nephrectomy in patients with intermediate or poor risk disease probably is not of benefit, and these patients may be harmed by surgery. Now, it's not an absolute statement, though, and I would just finish with that, which is that, look, there may be some patients who have excellent performance status, who have favorable risk disease, who have small volume distant disease, and these patients may benefit from cytoreductive nephrectomy, but by and large, surgical management of advanced kidney cancer has really taken a step back compared to what we can offer in the targeted therapy realm. So I think what you're saying is for the favorable risk patient, maybe for the uh, intermediate and poor risk patient, probably not. Exactly. Or what, what I think we see more often now and what I see in clinical practice is these patients that are intermediate and poor risk received systemic therapy, targeted therapy up front, and those that are responders who have stable disease outside the kidney then may be eligible for a delayed surgical approach now that they've proven to be uh, responders to systemic drug treatment. Right. All right, let's now talk a little bit about targeted therapies. Um, how should we as urologists broadly classify uh, targeted treatments? And what are the different types of targeted treatments and how do they work? Sure. I, I think this is probably one of the most intimidating aspects of when you look at metastatic kidney cancer. And it's only because there are so many new treatments that are available. There's so many new treatments that are coming out. There's so many different mechanisms of action. Uh, I think it's fairly intimidating, frankly, for many urologists when you look at it right off the bat. I mean, I think there's a few easy ways of thinking about how to classify this. I think that targeted therapy broadly is just really a type of systemic therapy. So it, frankly, it's not that different than chemotherapy, except targeted therapy and immunotherapy is more specific. It focuses on a specific target, a unique feature of cancer cells. And as a consequence, when you compare it to chemotherapy, it probably and in general has a lower side effect profile. When we look at kidney cancer, um, I think there are two types of targeted therapy. Uh, there are essentially the monoclonal antibodies, and these are target these target the outside or the surface of a cell, a cancer cell. And then you've got these kinase inhibitors, and kinase inhibitors really work on the inside of the cancer cell. And both of these have two primary targets, these monoclonal antibodies and these kinase inhibitors. They basically work, work on angiogenesis inhibition, so basically targeting blood vessel growth by blocking vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. There's mTOR inhibitors, so these are mammalian targeted rapamycin, or mTOR inhibitors, as well as epidermal growth factor receptors, or EGFR receptors. So if we just look at that broad framework, we'll just go through some of the names and some of the mechanisms that we see mostly in practice. So for monoclonal antibodies, like we talked about, the one that we know most commonly is used in kidney cancer is a drug called bevacizumab. And so bevacizumab is an infusion, it's an IV, and its target is a monoclonal antibody to VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. So it basically binds VEGF and prevents VEGF from binding to its receptor, and VEGF is responsible for angiogenesis. So it works through an angiogenesis pathway. When we look at kinase inhibitors, 
there's really two types of kinase inhibitors. There's tyrosine kinase inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors. Now, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors really can target a few different things. Some of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors target specifically VEGF, again, vascular endothelial growth factor, and the most common of these is axitinib. Um, you have another one that targets another tyrosine kinase that targets the epidermal growth factor receptor. So again, that one is called erlotinib. And then you have an array of them that are called multi-kinase inhibitors. So they basically target multiple different kinases, and many of them work by decreasing or restricting VEGF. And this includes sunitinib, serafinib, pazapinib, cabozantinib, and lenvatinib. So these are all the kinases. And then when we look at the mTOR inhibitors, there are two we use in kidney cancer, everolimus and temsorolimus. And the one difference between them is everolimus is a pill and temsorolimus is an infusion. And these mTOR inhibitors, essentially what mTOR is, is it's a protein that is responsible for cell growth. And it basically moves phosphates from one molecule to another, and the transfer of these phosphates is what prompts cell growth and division. And so the mTOR inhibitors that I've just described here basically block this signal. And probably the last thing I would say with this is, and even though we've had another podcast on immunotherapy, one of the critical things to realize for advanced kidney cancer is we are starting to use more combinations of treatment. And so we are using many targeted therapies, I've mentioned here, with some immunotherapies that are systemic. And probably the key ones that we're going to talk about for immunotherapy include PD-1 inhibitors, such as pembrolizumab and nivolumab. We're going to talk about ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 or cytotoxic T lymphocyte-associated protein 4 uh, uh, monoclonal antibody that targets that, and evalumab, which is a PDL1 antagonist. So we have a combination of different types of targeted therapy as well as immunotherapy. So I guess the, the obvious next question is, with all these different types of targeted therapies, how does one choose which therapy and which patient? How do we basically implement these different therapies into the care of our patient with uh, advanced kidney cancer? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So, you know, what we just talked about over the last few minutes is almost a word salad for most urologists. It's just a potpourri of different drugs that work by different pathways. But I think your question is really important, which is, okay, how do we take all that information and actually apply it? And and truthfully, I think the, the best way that we can follow these. And the best way that I use a lot of these is I use the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines, because the NCCN guidelines really take a lot of the information and the trials that have been done, and they create for us evidence-based treatment recommendations for different types of advanced kidney cancer. And essentially, the NCCN categories range from one to three. So one being where there's uniform consensus and it's high-level evidence, 2A, 2B, and 3. And most of what we're going to talk about here is going to be category one and 2A. Now, when you look at the NCCN, there are really three basic ways that the treatments are organized. It's based on 
what is the histology of kidney cancer? So is it clear cell, which is the most common, 80 to 85% of metastatic kidney cancer? Or is it non-clear cell? That's about 10 or 15%. The second is, um, is, are we dealing with patients who are favorable risk or are they poor or intermediate risk? And the final thing is, is this the first time they're receiving systemic therapy or is this subsequent therapy? So, you know, I, I don't want to go through all the different permutations, but perhaps, you know, I'll touch on maybe the scenarios that we would see most commonly uh, in our practices. So let's take a patient who has clear cell kidney cancer that is advanced, so it's metastasized, and we have a patient who is now, let's say, favorable risk. If we look at the NCCN guidelines, we really have three preferred regimens. One is sunitinib or pazapinib. So these are targeted therapies that we just talked about. Or we can use a combination of either axitinib with pembrolizumab. If you look at now that same type of clear cell kidney cancer, metastatic, but now let's say the patient has poor or intermediate risk disease, then the data transitions us a little bit that we would be perhaps using not the regimens I mentioned before, but now a different set of regimens. Ipilimumab with nivolumab, so these are both immunotherapy. Axitinib with pembrolizumab, that is a targeted therapy with immunotherapy. Or cabozantinib, which is a type of targeted therapy. And so hopefully what I'm able to illustrate here is for clear cell kidney cancer, we've got different algorithms we can use. And we'll talk about in a moment some of the key trials of how we came up with these combinations. And then obviously when we go to non-clear cell, the, the water gets a little bit more muddy and that's because the data is just not quite as good. But if you look at non-clear cell, you're really looking at sunitinib alone or really what's more common uh, being a clinical trial. So let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, clinical trials. And um, I know there have been a number of them that have been completed in the past uh, few years. Um, which are the most relevant to urologists? Yeah, I think th there are probably three or four that are really important because they've been published recently and they have really led to what I just spoke about, which is where these drugs are listed in the cascade of treatments for these patients. So I'll touch on a few of them and just sort of give you the high level information. The, the first one is Keynote 426. So Keynote 426 uh, was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2019, so just this year. And what it looked at was it looked at a randomized study of about 850 patients who were randomized to advanced uh, exitinib with pembrolizumab versus sunitinib. Okay, so this is advanced clear cell kidney cancer, exitinib with pembrolizumab versus sunitinib. And the group that got the combination therapy had superior median overall survival as well as progression-free survival. And so it's based on these results that the NCCN included exitinib with pembrolizumab as category one for poor and intermediate risk clear cell kidney cancer, and category 2A, so another preferred regimen for first-line kidney cancer favorable risk. So this trial really pushed that combination therapy to the forefront of treatment. 
The second trial that's probably important is Checkmate 214. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. And this was the trial that really introduced immunotherapy as a first-line option for uh, advanced kidney cancer. So what this looked at was it looked at a combination. It was a randomized trial. It looked at a combination of nivolumab with ipilimumab and compare that to patients receiving sunitinib alone. And again, this is advanced clear cell kidney cancer. And what this found is a similar theme to what we're gonna talk about, which was the combination treatment, nivolumab with ipilimumab, produced a much higher response rate and a complete response rate when compared to sunitinib alone. And because of this trial, when you look at patients with poor and intermediate risk clear cell histology, advanced kidney cancer, this combination therapy of ipilimumab and nivolumab has moved into the preferred regimen. Uh, the third trial I want to mention is uh, the Javelin uh, Renal 101 trial. So this was in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, this past year, 2019. And again, highlights another key concept that hopefully you're, you're getting the, the picture that combination therapy is really the way we're going. This looked at axitinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, with evalumab, which is a monoclonal antibody, versus sunitinib alone. And again, what it found was patients who received this combination of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor as well as a pdl one inhibitor, which is one of the immune therapy targets, had superior progression-free and overall survival compared to those receiving sunitinib alone. And then probably the final uh, trial I'd mention is the Cabosun trial. So the Cabosun trial was published in the journal Clinical Oncology in 2017, and it looked at two different tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It looked at cabozantinib versus sunitinib, and it really looked at a patient population that was predominantly intermediate and poor risk. And what the investigators found here was in this patient population, which was predominantly intermediate or poor risk, patients receiving cabozantinib did superior with regards to survival as well as recurrence when compared to the sunitinib arm. And so because of that, cabozantinib has moved into the preferred treatment regimen for clear cell kidney cancer, poor and intermediate risk patients. So essentially, hopefully what I've been able to convey to you is a lot of the current guidelines that are used in the NCCN, which is a continually changing landscape in kidney cancer, is largely impressed upon by these recently completed trials. And, and I suspect as we go on with time, as more drugs and therapies come out, we're going to see more shuffling of these different combinations based upon the data. So, Jay, my one question I have for you is, as a urologic oncologist, where do you fit in? to the treatment of these patients. Are you delivering this therapy yourself? Are you working with your uh, medical oncologists? How does the urologist sort of fit in? Because I know as urologists, we take a lot of ownership in our patients and we don't like to uh, hand them off, so to sure. speak. We like to be involved in their care. Um, what are the different scenarios in which urologists can stay involved in the care of our patients with advanced kidney cancer? 
Sure. I think it's a great question. So I think that I think some of it depends, frankly, on the practice environment that you're in. So I would tell you, for example, at Penn State College of Medicine, a lot of the systemic uh, therapies, whether they be targeted or immune therapy, are largely administered through our medical oncology colleagues, although the involvement of the urologist is predominantly in the role of monitoring disease, disease response, the role of delayed cytoreductive nephrectomy, the role of potentially even metastatectomy if patients have stable sites of disease, but perhaps one area that's growing or expanding. I would tell you that one could look at the management of advanced kidney cancer, very similar to how over time we have embraced advanced prostate cancer. So one of the key things to take away from hopefully this talk is many of the therapies that are being offered are offered through oral routes or uh, intravenous routes. And the side effect profile of targeted therapy and immunotherapy, frankly, is far more favorable than what we see with conventional systemic chemotherapy. So do I envision that if you have the proper infrastructure and the proper support staff where you can monitor these patients, not only for disease response, but side effects of therapy, can some of these in the right setting be in the hands of urologists? I think absolutely. I think the onus on, uh, is on us, however, to make sure that we are updated on the data, because clearly, as I've been able to highlight, hopefully for you, these trials are coming sort of fast and furious, and the landscape of what is sort of preferred options versus second line versus third line is certainly different than this year than it was two years ago or even five years ago. Great. Um, any other thoughts um, on advanced kidney cancer? Uh, where you think we're going in the future, how things will look maybe five years from now? Well, I, I mean, I certainly think that the, the model, I, I think we're going to see more and more combination therapy. So clearly, uh, immunotherapy continues to be used increasingly, increasingly across all urologic diseases. I think many of the trials that we're seeing um, from the, uh, from the kidney advanced kidney cancer literature really seem to show that monotherapy with tyrosine kinase inhibitors or targeted therapy with mTOR inhibitors, monotherapy itself is probably going to be shown to be, in my belief, inferior down the road. I think it's only logical that targeting cancer cells from several different approaches will be superior than simply using a single approach. So I think the significant changes are really going to be the integration of combination therapy for advanced kidney cancer. And then I think we really need to get a better idea for us as urologists on where does surgical management really play in as we move into this era of improved targeted therapy? Is it upfront? Is it delayed? Is it, uh, it, at what point is it delayed? At what point is the optimal surgical window? I think that's what we're looking at in the future. Great. Well, Jay, uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for this podcast, I, uh, I think you laid out a lot of information uh, and really uh, did it in a way that was uh, quite easy to understand. It's an awful lot of, uh, you know, there, been, there's been such an explosion in this area uh, in the past uh, really five years uh, in, in how we treat 
uh, advanced kidney cancer. Uh, and I think that you've really laid out all of the uh, all of the therapies quite nicely. And I think the take home message is uh, it looks like combination therapies are going to be superior. Uh, and uh, these combination therapies will continue to evolve. Uh, uh, and um, hopefully we'll see uh, better and better um, response rates uh, as time goes on and we learn uh, even more uh, about uh, advanced kidney cancer. And perhaps even, and this is a question we didn't even touch on, but uh, do you think there'll be a role uh, in kidney cancer for genetic testing and targeting therapies uh, based on genetic testing results? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think that... Uh, uh, without a doubt, if you if you looked at the whole concept of personalized cancer care, uh, clear cell histology, for example, has certain mutational profile associated with it. Uh, papillary has a certain mutational profile, and I think certain targeted therapies are are aimed at some of these molecular alterations. But one could argue that one of the critical elements even in those patients who are not surgical candidates for advanced kidney cancer, is obtaining tissue and obtaining tissue to characterize individuals' person's disease, such as histologic subtype. But one could go one step even further, which is really using some type of genetic profiling to better characterize their tumors and then better guide what would be the most effective combination or what new combinations may be most effective for individual persons beyond simply looking at broad categories like subtypes or risk groups. Great. Well, again, Jay, uh, thank you uh, so much. Uh, I would also like to thank our audience uh, for um, for listening. Uh, as always, if you'd like more information, please visit us visit us at auanet.org/university. Thank you.